I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I know that you have been hoping and praying for somebody to whisk you away to Hawaii, and today you're in luck. Come with me now to Hawaii. But a little time travel is involved here. The year is 1793. Somebody besides just us is arriving, and they just happen to drop off some gifts for King Kamehameha. And among the various gifts, some cattle, four bulls and eight cows. And then with bulls and cows on the island, eventually the king will need to have some cowboys to rope and wrangle and manage the herd. And that is how cowboys end up working in Hawaii long before there are any cowboys in Wyoming, where you would expect to find cowboys, Wyoming. But we're talking 1793. This seems so horribly anachronistic, like I'm making it up. But it's not, and I'm not. I'm just telling you what happened. Even in Hawaii today on the Big Island, there are traffic signs, I understand, along the road that warn people to slow down because sometimes cars hit cows and that's very dangerous. And those cows, from what I hear, are the great, 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 great grand calves of the gift cattle from 1793. Did I say 93? That's, you know, that's before Wyoming. I I want you now to meet somebody who has a story to tell about cows, Hawaii, and paniolo, which is the Hawaiian term for cowboys. This is a story about how three Hawaiian paniolo set off on a grand adventure to Wyoming. We're going to learn what took them there and how they came off conquerors. It's an improbable story, you could say of colliding cultures, but it was all in good sport. And the sport was the spectator sport of the traditional American rodeo. David Wolman is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, a longtime contributor at Wired. He's written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, Smithsonian, among others. Uh, He's written books on a range of diverse topics. Today we're going to be talking about his award-winning volume from 2020 titled Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. He's with us now by Skype. David Wolman, thanks for being with us. Hello, Marcus. Those British ships that brought those gifts to the king, that whole story gives me some kind of whiplash, I think. It just seems so improbable. That's early. It's very early. Uh, This was roughly 20 years after uh, Captain James Cook had visited uh, what was then known as the Sandwich Islands to to people in Europe. Uh, And 20 years later, uh, George Vancouver... uh, returned to Hawaii, hoping to repair relations, I should say, with the kingdom after things did not go very well for Captain Cook, who was killed here. And as part of the the gift-giving tradition and ceremony, uh, he gifted some cattle. And, you know, for the Hawaiians, they had never seen mammals this this huge, other than whales, I should say. Uh, I think... At the time, the biggest land mammals they'd ever seen were, were pigs. And so a lot of people didn't really know what to do with these animals running up and down the beach. But those um, emaciated, struggling cattle that had just crossed the ocean um, were really the start of what went on to become this wonderful um, ranching and cowboy tradition in the islands that, that most people, of course, just never think of because the word Hawaii uh, – immediately conjures in most people's minds, of course, um, surfboards and palm trees and Mai Tais and um, tropical print shorts and the rest of it. And so uh, I was fascinated by this history, and we can get into it a little bit more, about um, ranching in the islands and cattle culture here. And and the story, for me, really um, reaches its pinnacle in 1908 when three cowboys here traveled to compete uh, in the biggest rodeo in the world in Wyoming. Now, it's one thing for there to be ranches, but don't some of these uh, beasts kind of become feral? They're out and, and wild, do going wherever they want? Yes. Yeah, so so the book really follows the, the what I would call the evolution of um, cattle culture in the islands. So breezing through things, the, those first animals arrive, the king puts a taboo on killing them or messing with them, hoping that they will reproduce. Uh, and that um, 
people obey that rule very, very well. And in a matter of perhaps a generation, there are an estimated 20,000 feral cattle running roughshod over the island of Hawaii, which is only about the size of Los Angeles County. And that's when the king realizes they, they need to do something about the quote unquote cattle menace. And the king had gotten wind of the Spanish vaqueros working on the west coast of North America and these ideas of building fences and controlling herd populations and moving between different pastures. And so the king sent for some help to get the vaqueros to come to the islands and teach Hawaiian people about how to control these wild animals. And in a very short period of time, the Hawaiians got very good at this all of the work of ranching, really, uh, but particularly in this um, difficult terrain, which we can talk more about a little later, but we're talking about going from eight, 9,000 foot elevation up on uh, Mauna Kea, the mountain um, out the window behind me, uh, all the way down um, through searing temperatures to, to the ocean shore. Um, so the Hawaiians get very good at this, and they are able to more carefully control the population of these uh, longhorns. And, and really build out this uh, cattle industry here, supplying the whaling ships. And then as Honolulu especially becomes a, a larger and larger um, point of connection for international trade, um, the cattle, cattle culture and beef supply becomes critical to the growth of the, the economy of the Hawaiian kingdom. Now, in that story you've just told, I just have to ask you um – have you understated what a menace they had become? I, I mean, there were problems with people being <laughs> being gored and trampled gardens and such. Yes, you know, this is this is the um, the hazard, I guess, of zooming through a, a book <laughs> with quick summaries like that. Yes, yeah, so the the cattle menace really you can't overstate it. So they were trampling gardens, they were goring people. Hawaiians started to refuse to go up um, into the rainforests to hunt for traditional foods or to gather um, feathers used in ceremony, uh, all because nobody wanted to um, encounter these animals. And to underscore that point, you know, a lot of us think of cattle and, and you know, I, I grew up in New England. And so I in, almost instinctively picture these docile dairy cows, right? And it, it couldn't have been more different here at the time. You have these longhorns with racks five, six foot wide. Uh, these animals behave much more almost like a mountain lion. They're very reclusive. They don't want to be disturbed. And when someone hiking up into the bush or on horseback startled them, you know, they would sharp. And so they really were um, causing immeasurable problems for the communities here in the islands, not just on the big island, but very quickly, um, there are cattle populations on the other major islands as well, um, for, for the people, for farming. Uh, and of course, ecologically, they're just ravaging the place. And so something urgently needed to be done ab about them. And that's, and the answer was, was cowboys. You know, when we have an overpopulation of certain types of animals here in the American West, we start issuing hunting permits. And uh, you tell a story of uh, how, how hunting begins. I mean, this is surreal to think that people are, are getting permission to go hunting cattle before they pull them into ranches. They're, they're out there. This is like wild game. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is it's funny. We think about the Wild West, uh, but, but there was very much a Wild West happening out here, much further west. Uh, in the Pacific. And before the the advent of ranching, really, on the Big Island, attempt number one, I should say, to control the cattle was to at least call the population. And so they did hire a lot of hunters. They called them bullock hunters at the time. Uh, they got some folks from Australia. They had some people who were on stopovers from uh, on whaling vessels from Europe and North America. And, you know, a lot of those young mariners decided they liked Hawaii so much they're going to stick around. And some of them were pretty darn good with a musket. And so the king uh, or some of the chiefs would hire them to try and shoot some of the cattle here, especially on the big island. Uh, but they just couldn't keep up with the numbers problem at all. And so that's where they realized that the bullock hunters have some wonderful stories to tell, which we, we try to share in the book. But as far as... Um, 
any success controlling the feral cattle population. They just, they just couldn't get there. And so that's where they really needed ranching. So I'm now imagining that maybe before anybody's on the Oregon Trail headed out to the west coast of, or, or maybe before, you know, the gold rush of 1849, uh, there are already maybe whalers who put down their harpoons to go <laughs> hunting for cows? Yes. You know, not in, not in enormous numbers, but, but a lot of um, Hawaii's colonial history, frankly, is... Um, you know, sort of the, the political and business takeover story. But then there's also just, I, I don't know what you want to call it, sort of um, enchanted visitors story. A lot of the white people who settled here um, were on whaling ships, for example, and they are here to, for, to reprovision. And they look around and they think, well, I'm, why would I leave this place to sail back to um, somewhere much colder or stormier or where I'm not um, making the kind of living that I might be able to make here? Uh, and so there's this, there are a lot of people who stuck around. And one of them, of course, is um, a New Englander named John Palmer Parker. And he befriended the king and married um, granddaughter of the king and went on to become, um, to build himself something of a ranching empire here on the big island. Uh, but he, going back to your point about the bullock hunters, he was one of those early hunters of the feral cattle before the, he sort of had the light bulb go off that ranch, the money was going to be in the meat, not just in um, killing a handful of these animals at the, at the bequest of the king. So speaking of the king, he brings in, you had mentioned vaqueros from, uh, uh, I guess, northern Mexico or California. He brings them to Hawaii. And this is where the first cowboys are, I guess, trained locally. Exactly. And, you know, some of this, I, I have some some peers who um, in, also enjoy nerding out on this Wild West history. <laughs> and we do have to be careful when we talk about the first cowboys in America versus North America, as in the continent, uh, because the vaqueros really deserve that um, credit or title and, and should not be skipped over too quickly in, in any of this retelling. Because before before California was, was a thing in the United States sense of it, um, you had all these uh, Spanish missions out there uh, where they are indeed uh, managing cattle, herding cattle, um, moving them between pastures, all that, all the work of a cowboy. And so the first, the first cowboys in North America and, and are, are the vaqueros. Then comes Hawaii. And then after that, you get the American cowboy in the sort of stars and stripes sense of the word American. Uh, and, and that, that order of things I think is, is important to recognize. Um, so, here in the islands, when the king realizes, holy, holy, you know, holy cow, no pun intended, we have got this great problem. Uh, they get some help from the vaqueros who teach them uh, how to, to manage the herds and are teaching local Hawaiians how to ride, how to make saddles, how to braid a lariat. Uh, and the Hawaiians get very good at this very quickly. And, and in some ways, the vaqueros put themselves out of a job because the Hawaiians um, can, can take care of themselves and then some. And some of the, the vaqueros went back to, this is around gold rush time now, to sort of chase their fortunes elsewhere. Um, but the reality is they, they also just weren't needed anymore. Uh, and, and I should add, you know, sort of in a, in a, in a fun way, and in, in Hawaii is such a remarkable melting pot, some of those Spanish vaqueros stayed here and raised families or intermarried. And so there are certainly people on the big island who trace their roots back to uh, some of those very first Spanish vaqueros who came here. So what they set up there and what they train the Hawaiians to do, I mean, this is all part and parcel of, of like, I mean, we're talking saddles and lassos and the whole works. The whole works. And, and uh, all of it had sort of this wonderful... Hawaiian twist to it um, in terms of the, the wooden saddle design. They used these braided lariats um, and they were, their spurs were um, smaller so they'd be less likely to get caught up on some of the lava rocks that they were riding over. And there are all these kind of um, tweaks to the, the tools of the trade that they had to make um, so that they could do the job more effectively in this completely different climate. 
very simply here, a yes-no question followed by something a little bit more complicated. The yes-no question, paniolo, that just means cowboy? Yes. It most likely comes, is sort of a Hawaiianization of the word espanol. And so they were probably using espanol to describe those Spanish vaqueros and then espanol morphed into paniolo somehow. And that now is the Hawaiian term for, for cowboy. And the more complicated one, the one that has some real teeth in it here, this question, sharks versus bovine creatures. Why would cattle and sharks ever come together? I know. I mean, so many months after this book came out, I still can't believe I I get to talk about this stuff because, (laughs) uh, I mean – you know, book readings and things, people always ask you, so, you know, what, what are one or two of the most interesting or amazing things you learned? And I mean, sharks, <laughs> it just, so one of the, the details about the work of being a cowboy in Hawaii that in my view really sets these cowboys apart from cowboys anywhere in the world in terms of expertise and bravery, really, is that to get the animals to market, which they had to go by boat, which usually meant off to Honolulu or to points overseas. And the big steamships could not get inside the reef of a place like the big island. So the big steamships park outside the reef. And now you have hundreds of head of cattle down in a stone corral by the shore, and you have to get them out to the steamship that's going to take them to market. Are you with me? Well, I am, but this is just surreal. (laughs) I know, know, right? So what they use is they would have a a smaller boat, a long boat, um, with one person at the oars and um, one or two other men in the boat coming from the steamship over the breakers to the shore or near the shore. And the cowboys, the paniolo, would then herd the animals one at a time into the crashing waves sometimes with a border collie or something snapping at their heels to to make the animals get into the water. And they had these specially trained horses that were very good at swimming. And they would lead those animals out to those longboats that are parked, you know, 50, 75, 100 yards offshore, still within inside the reef. They would tie the animals off to the um, the longboat, maybe six or eight of them, three or four on each side, around the neck. So the animal, the cows, which can swim, they're tied around the neck and certainly doesn't look comfortable from the images, but they're tied around the neck as, as they, the boat sort of fills up and they reach their capacity of six or eight. Then they turn the longboat around and ride out past the reef to the steamship where then they're using this big um, hoist to lift the animals one at a time onto the deck of the big ships so that it will take them out to market. Okay, so the, the cowboys have to herd the cows into the surf. And of course, there are sharks here in Hawaii. Um, you know, the white, white tip reef sharks, for example, tiger sharks, uh, they, were, um, they saw an opportunity, you know, as we write in the book, to sort of nose for, for steak tartare. And on more than one occasion, the cows would, I'm sorry, the sharks would go after the cows that are either being herded out to the longboat or already tied off. And so now you have, I mean, to me, I just can't think of a greater, um, I don't know what you would call it, sort of challenge or hazard that a cowboy could face than, you know, a 10 foot long tiger shark coming up to you and your, your charge while you're on horseback with your horse that's, you know, only its neck and head are now swimming above the waterline. So, I mean, the whole thing really does sound like fiction. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely how they, they did the doing here uh, before the, the harbors were dug out so that those big steamships could park right on shore and the cattle could be loaded from a dock. So right now I'm kind of imagining myself as either Paniolo or Wyoming cowboy, and I'm weighing in both hands, grizzly shark grizzly shark. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll say no thank you to either one. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and pay grade. I, I, I'm just thinking about what the, these uh, Paniolo must have made. I mean, in these stories of these big, I mean, this is a story of big business really, isn't it? And, and the Paniolo are at the bottom of the rung, uh, the, the bottom rung of the whole ladder. They're, they're, they're just not compensated what they should be, I would imagine. That's, that's the way 
that kind of capitalistic story goes. You know, I, I would say yes and no. I would say yes, it is absolutely how that kind of capitalistic story goes. Small number of individuals, usually outsiders, white outsiders, um, you, you know, enjoying great riches at the expense of many others. On the other hand, from what I've read and my, my co-author Julian and I learned, we didn't see a lot of... Um, I would say written evidence that the Paniola were dissatisfied with their compensation or their lives. And, uh, you know, again, I, I say that with a number of grains of salt because certainly they, they may well have been um, dissatisfied, if not feeling cheated, um, watching other people get rich while they did such dangerous work and, and did not make a lot of money. But they were, you know, they, they, they also sort of lived the life of the ranch, you know, they all had these small cabins, um, connected to the Parker ranch, for example, and they would, there were baseball games on the weekend and there was healthcare presumably provided to them. And so almost kind of like, a, um, I don't know why kind of the, the 1980s Japanese salary man comes to mind. Yeah. Like the company is your life. And I think they did have a quality of life or a standard of living that was much higher, let's say, than, for example, the plantation communities, where it's that much more exploitative and that much more of a, of a gap between the rich and the poor. And so I, I do think you're right. It is a typical capitalism story. But there's something unique about um, life on the ranch that I don't think tracks necessarily to, let's say, the, the, the plantation, the sugar plantations. Uh, and, and you do see that in some of the language of the Paniolo talking about life on the range and enjoying nothing more than heading out in the moonlight on horseback to go rope cattle. Um, and I don't think you, you'll find similar writing from people who worked on a pineapple or, or sugar plantation, for example. In a way, are you also saying that there was a certain dignity, a certain status that came with being absolutely. a Paniolo? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to... Um, overly romanticize the idea, but we, we, we certainly found some people talking and writing to, to that effect, but, but whether those are outliers and we fell in love with them because they have sort of this literary feel to them, or whether they're actually representative of, of how the larger population of cowboys here felt, you know, that's sort of anyone's guess. Yeah. Well, we are going to get into a very specific story, and we're going to put some names on these Paniolo, at least a, a couple or three of them, and we're going to take them to Wyoming to participate in the rodeo all the way from Hawaii. We're going to take a short break first. Before we do that, we're visiting with David Woolman about his book, Aloha Rodeo. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. It's great pleasure to have with us writer David Woolman. We're talking about his book, Aloha Rodeo, from the year 2020. The subtitle, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. We're getting to that world's greatest rodeo part. And David, I, I understand that by the time we start talking about rodeos as a, say, a cultural phenomenon, that kind of comes around in a place like Wyoming when the American frontier is kind of getting closed off and it's already being um, kind of celebrated as a, a, a grand old history of what used to be. Is, is that kind of the way it worked? It is. You know, part of what we learned and, and really were, were fascinated by was this idea that the Wild West was – turning into something that, that the locals could cash in on kind of in real time, that the, the lifestyles that were being celebrated were fading away. In other words, almost as soon as the, the frontier is fully settled, quote unquote settled, people are realizing that Americans elsewhere, especially on the East Coast, are fascinated with Wild West lore, Wild West lifestyle, and would actually pay top dollar to come and watch people do a, a, a mock uh, stagecoach rivalry, for example, or witness people um, performing skills that a cowboy might perform on the range, in other words, rodeo. And for the town of Cheyenne in particular, this was important because after the railroad construction, 
the town went through this huge economic boom and bust. And the local people were desperate for some kind of new money-making venture. And they were looking around to other places uh, in Denver and Laramie. I remember um, one of the places we mentioned is um, they're talking about how in another town they have like the big, a big pickle festival or something like that. And in, in Cheyenne, the town council folks are sitting around and one guy says, you know, we don't raise anything in Cheyenne except hell. <laughs> and they decide that they do have a lot of cowboys uh, and even out of work cowboys who um, have a lot of skill. Maybe we could put together a rodeo and show this off to people from the East Coast, even Europe, uh, who are so fascinated by what they would call cowboy culture, even though it's what we would call, as of last year anyway, just everyday living. And so they put together Cheyenne Frontier Days. And, and in a matter of a decade, with support from Buffalo Bill Cody uh, and even um, President Teddy Roosevelt and, and others, it quickly grows into this enormous spectacle and arguably the greatest and, and biggest rodeo uh, on the planet at, at that time at least and so that's where we sort of catch up with our story of the Hawaiian Cowboys and, and brings us let's say to the year 1907. Well I know that Buffalo Bill and his entourage they made their way to Europe and, and went everywhere they're, they're on the road and on the on ships going they, they took their show to Hawaii? Cody doesn't go to Hawaii, but the world of rodeo and other sort of Wild West shows do um, do show up in the islands just around the turn of the century. Uh, and it's funny because in some newspaper accounts, the, the local sports writers are wholly unimpressed with these kind of junior varsity level Wild West shows. <laughs> uh, so they're kind of knockoffs <laughs> of the Buffalo Bill yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, every it's it's Buffalo Bill's Wild West show is sort of the, the premier show. He's arguably the most famous person on planet Earth at the time. And once he throws his support behind Frontier Days in Wyoming, that really elevates the, the status of that particular summertime event. Meanwhile, there are rodeos being held in the islands. There are now steer roping competitions and, um, and other events. Steer roping sort of becomes the, the centerpiece of this story. And here in the islands, there were many talented cowboys competing. And one quiet guy from the Parker Ranch named Ikua Purdy is scoring some really impressive times. And what happens with our story is that in the year 1907, uh, a Hawaiian cowboy by the name of Eben Lowe travels to Cheyenne and he's sitting in the stands watching the steer roping competition. And long story short, he's sitting there and he thinks, you know, my cousins could beat these guys. And Eben Lowe, who is something of an entrepreneur and impresario himself, in addition to being a, a, a rider and roper, he comes back to the islands and he makes arrangements for three Hawaiian Paniolo to travel and compete in Cheyenne Frontier Days in 1908 for his cousins to go um, represent Hawaii at the biggest rodeo in the world. So he's the guy, is he not, who's lost a hand and maybe he's arranging it all. He's kind of the handler for them because he can no longer do this himself? He actually can do this himself. Uh, he did lose his hand in a, a roping accident, which we detail in the story, uh, and I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but Ikua Purdy, the hero of our story, is, is really um, critical in, in that really dramatic episode when Eben Lowe um, almost dies out in the wilderness because of this injury. So Eben knows what Ikua and the others can do, and so he's the one who makes arrangements for them to go to Wyoming. And at that time, there's um, a steer roping um, superstar named Angus McPhee, whose name, first of all, I just love. <laughs> Secondly, uh, he is five-time steer roping champion, Wyoming native son. Uh, nobody can top this guy. And, and what's great about that for our story, uh, and this is a little bit more from a writing perspective, but you know, steer roping is a very quick contest. And so you, you're not going to be able to frame a whole book around one quick episode. But what happens with Angus McPhee 
and equiparity is we get this kind of um, ri protracted rivalry over time, right? And so that that works nicely for for storytelling and in the history of this thing, frankly, because the tension was building. Who was really the best before these guys finally faced off um, against one another? And so. Anyway, Ikua and his two cousins, Jack Lowe and Archie Ka'awa, travel uh, by boat, of course, from Honolulu to uh, Oakland, uh, or to San Francisco, and then over the bay, across the bay to Oakland um, in the summer of 1908, to, and then board the overland train to Cheyenne. You know, they'd never left Hawaii before then, and they arrive in Cheyenne, you know, wearing these brightly colored shirts. They have a flower lays wrapped around the brim of their cap. And people are looking at them um, suspiciously, curiously, um, quizzically. <laughs> people weren't necessarily um, mistreating them right off the bat, sort of in the in the, the bigoted sense of it. That was certainly there. There was also, but there was also a sense um, that this was a real novelty for people in Wyoming. You know, who who were these guys? You know, cowboys in Hawaii. That's kind of that's weird, but but nobody really thought they would be any any sort of threat in the competition sense of it. Uh, but of course, uh, but of course they were. You know, it just occurs to me. You describe them coming from Hawaii, so the rivalry was already established before they even come to Wyoming. I mean, people know about uh, there's going to be this pending kind of competition, and and they're on their way. Yes, and. We try to make this story about more than just roping and cattle culture, and, and really, frankly, where it is bigger than just the, the sports um, and ranching history, is that you have to put this in context for Hawaii um, politically, because this is just 10 years after the forced annexation of the islands, right? I mean, we're just, you and I are talking now just after the July 4 holiday. You know, there are a lot of people here who say that they are. Um, you know, they, they don't want to celebrate the 4th of July, that this was a hostile takeover and that they are, um, they are Hawaiian first and, and American by force. Uh, and for the Hawaiian people back then, you know, they were really, um, reeling from the, the end of the monarchy and the, this forceful takeover by this faraway power in Washington. And this sense of what will become of us and, and who are we now under this faraway overlord. And the three cowboys from Parker Ranch who went to Cheyenne to compete in the rodeo, they weren't necessarily, they didn't set out to represent their people or carry the, the weight of their people and their culture on their shoulders um, with this adventure. But the reality is that's exactly how it played out. And they ended up becoming sort of Hawaii's first non-political heroes, you know, right up there with, um, you know, Duke Kahanamoku, for example, the famous surfer and Olympic swimmer. Um, but they were just these quiet cowboys from a, a very rural part of the islands. Uh, but what what they did was was a lot more than just kick ass in a rodeo competition. The story I'm hearing is that there's great symbolic uh, value in trying to prove something. I mean, this is kind of like, I'm not making light of this. This is kind of like the folks in Wyoming and Cheyenne are hearing about this and they think, well, here comes the Jamaican bobsled team, you know? I think it's, it's a decent proxy, honestly, um, at first. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in the research for this was um, tracking the, the, what I would call the change in tone of the newspaper coverage from the beginning of the rodeo until the end. And what I mean by that is when they first show up, there's this sense of like, who are these quote unquote, you know, the quote unquote chocolate ropers from the faraway Pacific. And everyone's kind of curious about them. But as I mentioned before, nobody really thought they would be a, a, a threat um, when it came to, to competition level steer roping. And there was even a sense in the coverage of like, we need to show these guys a great time. And I think Cheyenne was quite proud of not just frontier days. They definitely were proud of frontier days, but this sense that our rodeo is so big and so huge. People are traveling from 4,000 miles away in Polynesia 
to come here and compete. And that, that was kind of special. And you see that reflected in the newspaper coverage. Like, let's show them a great time. And, and hey, maybe, maybe they even know how to do the doing a little bit. So that's before they start to compete. So I don't know what it really means to bust a steer in 56 seconds flat. Have you figured that out? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I have not figured out how to do that, of course, but, <laughs> uh, no, the steer grew up in competition. You're saddled up on your horse. You know, our Hawaiian heroes actually were using borrowed horses, not the horses that they rode, um, back in Hawaii. And then, um, these gates slam open and a steer is dashing across the rodeo grounds and the rider has to chase it, lasso it, jump off the horse, run toward it, flip it on its side and tie its legs together and throw his hands in the air to indicate that he's finished and stop the clock. And um, needless to say, that's not easy. <laughs> so, um, you know, one, even just one quick miss with your lasso, you know, you're looking at a lot of seconds that you just burned through, or if the animal takes a sudden turn or sometimes tries to jump a fence, uh, it, you know, it's really, really wild competition. And after the first day of competition here, the Hawaiians very quickly show how great they are at this, this skill. And the, sort of curious, sort of welcoming language of the sports writers um, in Cheyenne, you know, that's gone by day two. And now they're basically saying, okay, well, that was all well and good. Now, Wyoming boys, can we send these foreigners packing, please, and show them who's boss? And I think that's where the spirit of welcome kind of ends quickly. And we see sort of a swelling and um, – of more bigoted, you know, more bigoted attitudes. The the Hawaiian Paniolo are being refused entry at a saloon, for example. And this is when why the the people of Wyoming they they don't want they're not going to be beat by these guys. No way. And so that's what leads us to to day two. You know, I'm trying to imagine this as something more than just a competition at a rodeo because this is an epic story of – I mean, I know that this, the, the ships were probably steamships that brought them through. There's no Golden Gate yet. They're coming through into you know the San Francisco Bay. 1906 was the earthquake. They're passing a city that still hasn't been rebuilt. They they get probably on a train to get to Wyoming. The train was there at, at that point. But then there's this rainbow right before the competition. Till, I mean, this is really a remarkable path that they took. And then the rainbow, and that apparently is very important. Yes. I mean, sometimes you, you read these things and you're like, wow, it does sound made up. <laughs> but uh, you know, this is nonfiction and, um, you know, in a lot, in, in Hawaiian culture, you know, people have, um, animals or things in nature that are meaningful for different individuals or families. And the rainbow, um, was very important, you know, not just culturally, but in the Purdy family specifically in terms of a symbol of giving people strength and serenity and, um, so there was some light rain before Ikua Purdy's um, ride in on the final competition, and then the clouds broke. And according to Ikua and and, and others, um, there was a, a a rainbow right before the gates open, and he chases a steer out. And you know, I don't think we're giving anything away here when we say that he wins the competition. Uh, and it's just a beautiful moment. And for for forget the fact that it's a beautiful moment for you and me kind of as people interested in history and this history 110 years later, it was especially beautiful for the Hawaiian people reading about this in the newspaper a couple of days later. I mean, it just blew their minds and the sense of pride was really um, immeasurable, but it was, if there are indicators of it, it was the the thousands of people crowded onto the docks in Honolulu when the Paniolo sailed home and finally arrived back home a few weeks later um, to these huge celebrations and parades and luau's on all the major islands. Uh, these were really um, heroes of the the Hawaiian Kingdom, which of course is now the Hawaiian the territory of Hawaii, and 
that to me that that makes the story so more, that much more special and about again about so much more than just roping and riding. Last of all, do you have any sense for how long the legacy, the memory lasted in Hawaii back home for these heroes? Well, it's definitely still here. Uh, you know, I, I now actually live in the town of Waimea, which is um, sort of ground zero for this story. And there's a giant statue of Ikua Purdy right in front of the sort of main shopping plaza in town. Um, there's a, um, a, a hula song called uh, Waimina, which is for, for Wyoming. Uh, there's a kind of long tradition of connection between Wyoming and Hawaii now because of this history. Um, Ikua Purdy, I think, I think their victory was um, in that year, it was kind of paved over for a few generations, probably because it was an embarrassment that these not white guys triumphed back then. But then I think in, I think the year was early nineties. I'll have to double check now, but Ikua Purdy uh, was finally inducted into the rodeo hall of fame. And so people here are absolutely still proud of, of this history. Um, both these individuals and, and the, the Peniolo culture. And I'll give you one other quick, quick anecdote about that, which is during the research, I was talking with this ecologist about the cattle, the wild cattle that are still here in Hawaii. Um, I think some estimates are about 2000 animals way up on the mountain that are hiding in these thorny bushes, uh, you know, really not bothering anyone. But but from a strictly ecological perspective, they are still a problem. Um you know, nibbling on these small saplings of trees of people who are trying to bring back native forests, for example, right? So, so they are a nuisance if you're just coming at this from an ecological perspective. So anyway, I mentioned this to him and I, I use the phrase invasive species. And he kind of wagged a finger at me and was like, you know, to a lot of people they here in, in upcountry Hawaii, like they would take offense at that. You know, these are the, these are the descendants of the king's cattle. And so it's not so easy or it's just a little too simplistic to call them a menace or an invasive species because now, and I just loved that moment of, of having someone correct me, frankly, because it was a reminder that number one of, of how complicated Hawaii history is, frankly, but, but also that, that cattle have really become part of, of the culture here. And again, when I think most, most people hear the word Hawaii, they're just thinking about palm trees and white sandy beaches, uh, but they should also be thinking about cattle too. David Woolman with us. He is author with co-author Julian Smith of Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. On occasion, I like to tell people that I lived in Hawaii once. It's very true. I just have no memory uh, of the whole thing because I was an infant. Uh, But we're not going to leave Hawaii just yet for this hour of constant wonder because we have another great episode to share with you about Hawaiians making their mark in the world by way of athletic competition. Water, very important to this story, but we're done with sharks for the time being. Stay tuned to learn about the three-year swim club on Constant Wonder. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. The Three-Year Swim Club, the untold story of Maui's sugar ditch kids and their quest for Olympic glory. It's actually no longer untold as a story because Julie Checkaway tells it in her book by that title. Eric Schultzka had a chance to visit with Julie Checkaway, and they got going in conversation about Soichi Sakamoto, who was an elementary school teacher in Maui, Sakamoto came to teach a group of children of cane workers how to swim, and the innovations made by Sakamoto actually changed swimming forever. It is June of 1937, and in the midst of a very, very hot day, a sixth-grade science teacher on the island of Maui, in the heart of Maui, on a sugar plantation, exits his school building at the end of the day, briefcase in hand, and he comes upon a scene that is striking to him. In the fields are naked children. (laughs) They are running 
from an irrigation ditch and in pursuit of them is a man astride a really powerful horse. And that man is chasing them through the cane fields with a whip in hand because the children, American children and Filipino children, the children of cane workers um, on this plantation in Punene, Maui, have been swimming in an irrigation ditch um, that is forbidden to them on a very hot day. Suichi Sakamoto sees this. The children, many of them are his students in his sixth grade science class. Many of them he's coached before, but many of them are also just children of the plantation, girls and boys um, who strike him as you know, real victims of this um, Luna or um, workmen uh, on the plantation. And he sees them and they're hiding and they're running through the cane fields. And again, they have no clothes on because they've just come from swimming in the ditch um, uh, without permission. And it strikes him that this isn't fair, that it just is not fair that this is happening. He is not of the plantation. He's a more middle-class kind of guy. And he, the next day goes on to approach the plantation authorities and to ask them permission for the children to be able to swim after school in the ditch. And he himself, though he cannot swim, offers uh, the plantation authorities that he will supervise the kids so they won't drown. And this is how the story of the three-year swim club really begins. You have to kind of do a mental adjustment when you realize that there are kids in Hawaii who can't swim. Maui is an island surrounded by a gorgeous ocean. And yet the area that I'm describing to you is maybe 20 miles away from the ocean itself. And this is an area that is the dry heart of Maui. This is where cane is grown in a rather arid area that needs to be irrigated, but is so far away from the sea that the children don't get to go to it. They're not natural swimmers. Their lives are circumscribed by the plantation and plantation life and laborers' life. They're not seafarers. They're not surfers. Um, they are really stuck on this plantation. Yeah. So uh, when Sakamoto says that I will watch the kids, of course, he was an ideal uh, lifeguard because he's a very accomplished swimmer, right? No, no. no I know. I'm just kidding. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I, I didn't know. What you were no, um, yeah. No, Suichi Sakamoto, what's really, what was really delightful about learning about him and studying him and, and finding out and unraveling his life was to discover that he, he could swim. There was a myth that he couldn't um, at all, but he was, he could swim. He had passed, barely passed um, the Eagle Scout um, swim requirement. And yet he would admit that he could only do sort of a, a serviceable side stroke. So, um, no, he wasn't a very good swimmer, but contrary to belief, you know, he really, he really could swim okay enough to watch the kids. Now, I'm not sure he could have saved them, but he, he had occasion where he did pull the kids out of the water. This is part of, uh, kind of the story though, is that the, um, technique of swimming, even for Olympic swimmers was not that, uh, was not as we know it today. He actually played a role in transforming how we train and swim, right? Well, what's, what's interesting about him is because he wasn't a great swimmer. He was instead an intuitive and scientific coach. So because he had a background in, in science and science education, science curriculum, you know, he, he would do things like sit in a furo, which is a Japanese steam bath, and he would watch the water and how it moved around his body. 
And he would think about that before he would teach the kids. He conceptualized swimming without ever really learning exactly how to swim himself. So when he was teaching the kids, he invented a curriculum because he's working largely in isolation. He had certainly seen Olympic swimmers swim. He had seen Duke Kahanamoko swim and Buster Crab when he'd been um, on Oahu going to school himself there. But he hadn't seen that a lot. And so he had a layperson's sense of what it was to swim. When he taught the kids in the ditch, he turned off the valve so that the ditch would be, uh, for most of the time, he turned off the valve so the water would be still. And he had the kids get in and he would say to them, first, I want you to just float on your backs. So he got them to experience, you know, floating. Then I want you to turn over and I want you to just put your face in the water. These are all the things we do today, but there was no curriculum. I'm picturing that water and thinking, ugh. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sometimes it would flow clearly and other times, um, as some of the kids told me, other adults, it flowed as dark as chocolate milk was how muddy it was. It was pretty gross. It just depends on when you were in it. So they did this, but they, you know, they were happy to be in the water, I think, um, from what they told me. It was a, a delight, a cooling delight to be there. So then he would say, now with your face in the water, I want you to just move your arms, you know, just move your arms and move your legs and start kicking. And once they were actually mobile in the water, he began to refine his ideas of stroke and kicking. And he began to look at the human body and ask himself, okay, what's the most propulsive part of the body? Would it be the feet, the legs, the arms? Where is there the least friction? If you want to go fast with a, if you want a body to go faster in the water, do we want, you know, the body to be higher in the water, the head to be higher in the water, the head to be lower in the water? How many breaths should one take and on which side if one's doing, you know, this crawl, this kind of um, That's amazing. Crawl it's, I mean, he, he so, missed his calling. He could have been an engineer or something mm-hmm. else. Yeah, he was somebody who had a really scientific mind. And um, at the time, most coaches were either scientific or intuitive across the world. And he sort of brought those two approaches together. Yeah, he was brilliant. He was really brilliant. Eric Schultzka of our team here at Constant Wonder. Eric was speaking with Julie Checkaway. Checkaway is author of The Three-Year Swim Club, the untold story of Maui's sugar ditch kid.